0: page 76 one christmas at midnight on the button at the old place the ward door blows open with a crash in comes a fat man with a beard eyes ringed red by the cold and his nose just the color of a cherry the black boys get him cornered in the hall with flashlights i see he's all tangled in the tinsel public orations has been stringing all over the place and he's stumbling around in it in the dark He's shading his red eyes from the flashlights and sucking on his mustache. Ho, 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 he says. I'd like to stay, but I must be hurrying along. Very tight schedule, you know. Ho, ho, must be going. The black boys move in with the flashlights. They kept him with us six years before they discharged him. Clean shaven and skinny as a pole. The big nurse is able to set the wall clock at whatever speed she wants by just turning one of those dials in the steel door. She takes a notion to hurry things up. She turns to speed up, and those hands whip around that disc like spokes in a wheel. The scene in the picture screen windows goes through rapid changes of light to show morning, noon, and night. Throb off and on furiously with day and dark, and everybody is driven like mad to keep up with that passing of fake time. Awful scramble of shaves and breakfasts and appointments and lunches and medication and 10 minutes of night. So you barely get your eyes closed before the dorm's light screaming at you to get up and start the scramble again, go like a son of a bitch this way, going through the full schedule of a day, maybe 20 times an hour, till the big nurse sees everybody is right up to the breaking point. And she slacks off on the throttle, eases off the pace on that clock dial like some kid been fooling with the moving picture production machine and finally got tired watching the film run at 10 times its natural speed, got bored with all that silly scampering and insect squeak of talk, and turned it back to normal. She's given to turning up the speed this way on days like, say when you got somebody to visit you, or when the VFW brings down a smoker show from Portland. Times like that. Times you'd like to hold and have stretch out. That's when she speeds things up. But generally, it's the other way, the slow way. She'll turn that dial to a dead stop and freeze the sun there on the screen so that it don't move a scant hair for weeks. So not a leaf on a tree or a blade of grass in the pasture shimmers. The clock hands hang at two minutes to three and she's liable to let them hang there till we rest. You sit solid and you can't budge. You can't walk or move to relieve the strain of sitting. You can't swallow and you can't breathe. The only thing you can move is your eyes, and there's nothing to see but petrified acutes across the room, waiting on one another to decide whose play it is. The old chronic next to me has been dead six days, and he's rotting to the chair. And instead of fog, sometimes she'll let a clear chemical gas in through the vents and the whole ward is set solid when the gas changes into plastic. Lord knows how long we hang this way. Then gradually she'll ease up the dial a degree, and that's worse yet. I can take hanging dead still better, and I can take that syrup slow hand of Scanlan across the room, taking three days to lay down a card. My lungs pull for the thick plastic air like getting it through a pinhole. I try to go to the latrine and I feel buried under a ton of sand, squeezing my bladder till green sparks flash and buzz across my forehead. I strain with every muscle and bone to get out of that chair and go to the latrine. Work to get up till my arms and legs are all a shake and my teeth hurt. I pull and pull and all I gain is maybe a quarter inch off the leather seat. So I fall back and give up and let the pee pour out activating a hot salt wire down my left leg that sets off humiliating alarms, sirens, spotlights, everybody up and yelling and running around and the big black boys knocking the crowd aside right and left as the both of them rush headlong at me, waving awful mops of wet copper wires, cracking and spitting as they short with the water. About the only time we get any let up from this time control is in the fog. Then time doesn't mean anything. It's lost in the fog, like everything else. They haven't really fogged the place full force all day today, not since McMurphy came in. I bet he'd yell like a bull if they fogged it. When nothing else is going on, you usually got the fog or the time control to contend with. But today something's happened. There hasn't been any of these things worked on us all day, not since shaving. This afternoon everything is matching up. When the swing shift comes on duty, the clock says 4:30, just like it should. The big nurse dismisses the black boys and takes a last look around the ward. She slides a long silver hat pin out of the iron blue knot of her hair back of her head. Takes off her white cap and sets it careful in a cardboard box. There's mothballs in that box and drives that hat pin back in the hair with a stab of her hand. Behind the glass, I see her tell everyone, good evening. She hands the little birthmark swing shift nurse a note. Then her hand reaches out to the control panel in the steel door, clacks on the speaker in the day room. Good evening, boys. Behave yourselves. And turns the music up louder than ever. She rubs the inside of her wrist across the window. A disgusted look shows the fat black boy who just reported on duty that he'd better get to cleaning it. And he's at the glass with the paper towel before she so much as locked the ward door behind her. The machinery in the wall whistles, sighs, drops into a lower gear. Then, till night, we eat and shower and go back to sit in the day room. Old Blastic, the oldest vegetable, is holding his stomach and moaning. George, the black boys call him Rub A Dub, is washing his hands in the drinking fountain. The acutes sit and play cards and work at getting a picture on our TV set by carrying the set every place the cord will reach in search of a good beam. The speakers in the ceiling are still making music. The music from the speakers isn't transmitted in on the radio beam is why the machinery don't interfere. The music comes off a long tape from the nurse's station, a tape we all know so well by heart that there don't any of us consciously hear it except new men like mcmurphy he hasn't got used to it yet he's dealing blackjack for cigarettes and the speakers right over the car table he's pulled his cap way forward till he has to lean his head back and squint from under the brim to see his cards he holds a cigarette between his teeth and talks around it like a stock auctioneer i saw once at a cattle auction in the dallas hey uh hey uh come on come on he says high fast I'm waiting on you suckers, you hit or you sit, hit you say, well, 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 and with the king up, the boy wants a hit, what do you know, so coming at you and too bad, a little lady for the lad, and he's over the wall and down the road, up the hill and dropped his load, coming at you, Scanlin. and I wish some idiot in that nurse's hothouse would turn down that freaking music, hooey, does that thing play day and night harding, I've never heard such a driving racket in my life, Harding gives him a blank look. Exactly what noise is it you're referring to Mr. McMurphy? That damned radio. Boy, it's been going on ever since I came in this morning and don't come on with some baloney that you don't hear it. Harding cocks his ear to the ceiling. Oh yes, the so-called music. Yes, I suppose we do hear it if we concentrate, but then one can hear one's own heartbeat too if he concentrates hard enough. He grins at McMurphy. You see, that's a recording playing up there, my friend. We seldom hear the radio. The world news might not be therapeutic. And we've all heard that recording so many times now, it simply slides out of our hearing. The way the sound of a waterfall soon becomes an unheard sound to those who live near it. Do you think if you live near a waterfall, you could hear it very long? I still hear the sound of the falls on the Columbia. Always will, always hear the whoop of Charlie Bear Belly stabbed himself a big Chinook, hear the slap of fish in the water, laughing naked kids on the bank, the woman at the racks from a long time ago. Do they leave it on all the time like a waterfall, McMurphy says? Not when we sleep, Cheswick says, but all the rest of the time, and that's the truth. The hell with that. I'll tell that little coon over there to turn it off or get his fat little ass kicked. He starts to stand up and Harding touches his arm. Friend, that's exactly the kind of statement that gets one branded assaultive. Are you so eager to forfeit your bet? McMurphy looks at him. That's the way it is, huh? A pressure game. Keep the old pinch on? That's the way it is. He slowly lowers himself back into his seat, saying, horse manure. Harding looks at the other acutes around the car table. Gentlemen, already I seem to detect in our red headed challenger a most unheroic decline of his TV cowboy stoicism. He looks at McMurphy across the table, smiling. McMurphy nods at him and tips his head back for the wink and licks his big thumb. Well, Sir Old Professor Harding sounds like he's getting cocky. He wins a couple of splits, and he goes to coming on like a wise guy. Well, well, well. There he sits with the deuce showing, and here's a pack of Marlboros, says he backs down. Whoops, he sees me. Okie dokie, professor, here's a tray, he wants another, gets another deuce. Try for big five, professor. Try for that big double, pay or play it safe. Another pack says you won't. Well, 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 the professor sees me. This tells the tale, too bad. Another lady, and the professor flunks his exams. The next song starts up from the speaker, loud and clangy and a lot of accordion. McMurphy takes a look up, at the speaker, and his spiel gets louder and louder to match it. Heya, heya, okay, next. God damn it, you hit or right or sit. Coming at ya. Right up to the lights out at 9.30. I could have watched McMurphy at that blackjack table all night. The way he dealt and talked and roped them in and just let them smack up to the point where they were just about to quit, then back down a hand or two to give them confidence and bring them along again. Once he took a break for a cigarette and tilted back in his chair. His hands folded behind his head and told the guys. The secret of being a top-notch con man is being able to know what the mark wants and how to make him think he's getting it. I learned that when I worked a season on the skillet wheel in a carnival. You feel the sucker over with your eyes when he comes up and you say, now here's a bird that needs to feel tough. So every time he snaps at you for taking him, you quake in your boots, scared to death and tell him, Please, sir, no trouble. The next roll is on the house, sir. So the both of you are getting what you want. He rocks forward and the legs of his chair come down with a crack. He picks up the deck, zips his thumb over it, knocks the edge of it against the tabletop, looks his thumb and finger. And what I deduce you marks need is a big fat pot to temptate you. Here's 10 packages on the next deal. Hey, ya, coming at you, guts ball from here on out and throws back his head and laughs out loud at the way the guys hustle to get their bets down. That laugh banged around the day room all evening and all the time he was dealing, he was joking and talking and trying to get the players to laugh along with him. But they were all afraid to loosen up. It'd been too long. He gave up trying and settled down to serious dealing. They won the deal off him a time or two, but he always bought it back or fought it back. And the cigarettes on each side of him grew and bigger and bigger pyramid stacks. Then just before 930, he started letting them win. Let them win it all back so fast, they don't hardly remember losing. He pays out the last couple of cigarettes and lays down the deck and leans back with a sigh and shoves the cap out of his eyes, and the game is done. Well, sir, win a few, lose the rest is what I say, he shakes his head so forlorn. Forlorn. I don't know, I was always pretty shrewd customer at 21, but you birds may just be too tough for me. You got some kind of uncanny knack. Makes a man leery of playing against such sharpies for real money tomorrow. He isn't even kidding himself into thinking they fall for that. He let them win, and every one of us is watching the game knows it. So do the players. But there still isn't a man raking his pile of cigarettes. Cigarettes he didn't really win, but only won back because they were his in the first place that doesn't have a smirk on his face, like he's the toughest gambler on the whole Mississippi. The fat black boy and a black boy named Giver run us out of the day room and commence turning off the lights with a little key on a chain. And as the ward gets dimmer and darker, the eyes of the little birthmark nurse in the station get bigger and brighter. She's at the door of the glass station, issuing nighttime pills to the men that shuffle past her in line and she's having a hard time keeping straight who gets poisoned with what tonight. She's not even watching where she pours the water. What has distracted her attention this way is that big red-headed man with the dreadful cap and the horrible-looking scar coming her way. She's watching McMurphy walk away from the card table in the dark day room, his one horny hand twisting the red tuft of hair that sticks out of the little cup at the throat of his work farm shirt and I figure by the way she rears back when he reaches the door of the station, that she's probably been warned about him beforehand by the big nurse. Oh, one more thing before I leave it in your hands tonight, Miss Pilbo. The new man sitting over there, the one with the garish red sideburns and facial lacerations, I've reason to believe he is a sex maniac. McMurphy sees she's looking so scared and big eyed at him, so he sticks his head in the station door where she's issuing pills, gives her a big friendly grin to get acquainted on. This flusters her so she drops the water pitcher on her foot. She gives a cry and hops on one foot, jerks her hand and the pill she was about to give me leaps out of the little cup and right down the neck of her uniform where that birthmark stain runs like a river of wine down into the valley. Let me give you a hand, ma'am. And that very hand comes through the station door, scarred and tattooed and the color of raw meat. Stay back. There are two aides on the ward with me. She rolls her eyes for the black boys, but they are off time chronics in bed, nowhere close enough to help in a hurry. McMurphy grins and turns the hand over so she can see he isn't holding a knife. All she can see is the light shining off the slick, waxy, calloused palm. All I mean to do, miss, is to stay back. Patients aren't allowed to enter the, oh, stay back, I'm a Catholic. And straight away jerks at the gold chain around her neck so a cross flies out from between her bosoms, slingshots the lost pill up in the air. McMurphy strikes at the air right in front of her face. She screams and pops across in her mouth and clenches her eyes shut like she's about to get socked. Stands like that, paper white except for that stain which turns darker than ever, as though it sucked the blood from all the rest of her body. When she finally opens her eyes again, there's that calloused hand right in front of her with my tiny red capsule sitting in it was to pick up your watering can you dropped he holds that out in the other hand her breath comes out in a loud hiss she takes the can from him thank you good night good night and closes the door in the man's face no more pills tonight in the door mcmurphy tosses the pill on my bed you want your sourball chief i shake my head at the pill and he flips it off the bed like it was a be- a bug pestering him it hops across the floor with a cricket scrabble He goes to getting ready for bed, pulling off his clothes. The shorts under his work pants are coal black satin covered with big white whales and red eyes. He grins when he sees I'm looking at the shorts. From a co-ed Oregon state chief, a literary major. He snaps the elastic with his thumb. She gave them to me because she said I was a symbol. His arms and neck and face are sunburned and bristled with curly orange hair. He got tattoos on each shoulder. One says fighting leathernecks, and has a devil with a red eye and red horns and an M1 rifle, and the other is a poker hand fanned out across his muscle, aces and eights. He puts his roll of clothes on the nightstand next to my bed and goes to punching at his pillow. He's been assigned the bed right next to mine. He gets between the sheets and tells me I better hit the sack myself, that here comes one of those black boys to douse the lights on. I look around, and the black boy named Giver is coming and I kick off my shoes and get in bed just as he walks up to tie a shirt across me. When he's finished with me, he takes a last look around and giggles and flips the dorm lights off. Except for the white powder of light coming from the nurse's station out in the hall, the dorm is dark. I can just make out McMurphy next to me, breathing deep and regular, the covers over him rising and falling. The Breathing gets slower and slower till I figure he's been asleep for a while. Then I hear a soft throaty sound from his bed like the chuckle of a horse he's still awake and he's laughing to himself about something he stops laughing and whispers why you sure did give a jump when I told you that coon was coming chief I thought somebody told me you was deaf